Saturday mornings with Muthi. Um, apparently that that Saturday morning hook is working because uh, the um, listener stats, if they're to be believed, and they're not just bots in some social media bot farm in China or someplace. Um, apparently that hook's working because the listener numbers are are up significantly on a Saturday morning. So. Uh, welcome to the Muthanomics podcast. Instead of Saturday morning cartoons, it's the Muthanomics podcast. Um, and of course, there's that little catchy jingle, um, Saturday mornings with Muthy, uh, which is a plagiarizing, shameless plagiarizing of that oldie uh, Saturday night at the movies. Who cares what picture we'll see? I'll be sitting with my baby doing something. Hello. Again, the good old days weren't all that pure. They seemed to be quite scandalous under the guise of, of catchy bebop and jazz. Uh, how's everybody doing? I hope you had a good week. I'm here early on a Saturday morning with a sore back. Sipping away um, on my coffee. Is there anything, I'm sure there are, I say this a lot, it's hyperbole, you should know this by now. Um, is there anything more annoying than USB auto connectors that don't auto detect? Holy moly. It's like, oh, it's just a plug and play. It's a USB plug and play. Well, most of the time it's a plug and pray. Those were the, those were the drum and symbol for that joke. Um, dad joke alert, dad joke alert. It's plug and pray. I, I, I don't even, I, I want to say at least half the time, my, maybe even more. Um, you plug it in and it just looks at you like it's got like, you know, man, there, I, I hate the fact that I have a filter um, so that I don't offend people. Um, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing, but yeah, you plug it in and it just it just sits there and just stares at you like it's has an IQ of twelve, um, and it's like yeah, I'll show you plug and play. <laughs> I'm gonna make you sweat this out and troubleshoot and reboot three times. Um, but that's been happening happening a lot with uh, my podcasting microphone. I go to select it as the input source and the computer is like haha it's invisible we know you just plugged and tried to play it but we're gonna pretend like it's the invisible man um which actually looks like a funny slash kind of creepy movie um i think it's actually called invisible man um i forget where i saw the Excuse the clicking. My mouse pad still hasn't showed up. I ordered it and it said it was like a 30-day arrival because they're so backordered with everybody working from home. Um, but I think there's a movie called Invisible Man. And I forget, maybe maybe during the first time, maybe it was during, oh yeah, Invisible Man is a 2020 Australian-American science fiction horror film. Written and directed by Leigh Wannell. 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 Loosely based on the novel of the same name by H.G. Wells. Oh, interesting. I had no idea that H.G. Wells wrote something called Invisible Man. 
And of course, this is all verifiable fact because it is on Wikipedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica for this generation. Um, I don't know if you've been following that, but when bad things happen, um, when I say bad things, I mean like PR disasters, Wikipedia has been locking the editing feature on certain pages. <laughs> so I read this last week. I think they locked the Robin Hood uh, editing feature because so many traders that got jammed up on not being able to buy GameStop through the roof any longer. Uh, they were going to Wikipedia to malign Robin Hood through the Wikipedia entry, so they locked it. Um, yeah, it's funny. The information wars are becoming hilarious. Google deleting a couple hundred thousand negative reviews of Robin Hood. Um, Wikipedia locking the editing features. Pretty funny stuff. Anyway, The Invisible Man. Um, I think it was during uh, the beginning part of lockdown that we saw an ad for this thing. And it was like modern CGI with uh, like you could see like steamy footprints where the guy was. And the poster here has, hey, good morning, dude. How are you? Uh, we're in the grunting stage of the wake up at this point in time. It's funny the differences in your kids like last week or two weeks ago. You're pro I'll, I'll get to last week why there was no Saturday mornings with Muthy last week. Um, but the difference between your kids, like my daughter came down a couple weeks ago and she was like this shining rainbow burst of sunshine, like a, you know, downy fresh commercial or something. Good morning, dad, smiling and beaming and my oldest son comes downstairs this morning and he's got his hoodie over his face and uh, 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 quite different. The DNA, it's not DNA. It's not biology. It's a social construct. You have trained him to grunt and you trained your daughter to be a girl. It's a social construct. It's not science. Um, I've been working on, I said this last time, uh, working on some book beat beverage, new episodes. And you go, well, how come you haven't published a book beat beverage episode in a couple months? Well, the dirty little secret of it is, is that I actually have to finish the books before I can do an episode. I guess I could read the cliff notes version and then pretend like I read them, um, and be a totally, uh, fake famous type person. Um, but for some reason, I feel like I actually need to finish the book before I review it. So um, I have been finishing books, so I've got some queued up. Um, but I'm also going to do a book beat butter episode, which is going to be fun. Um, I found a, a new favorite uh, nut butter company, a small startup in the Pacific Northwest, which is probably run by a bunch of smelly hippies, but they, they produce um, fantastic nut butter. So um, I don't really care what their personal hygiene is as long as it doesn't uh, make its way into their jar. And of course, that's just a brainless stereotype of people in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but the video evidence, video evidence might be on my side. Anyway, this invisible man, uh, it's like CGI of like, you know, you can see his footprints in the sand or um, and on the poster they have his um, handprint 
uh, making its way on some sort of like foggy window. Um, and the subtitle is what you can't see can hurt you. Hello. Um, anyway, Johnny Depp is attached to the star in the title role. Um, Wow, it was at H.G. Wells 1897. Oh, Johnny Depp was originally supposed to be attached to it when they started talking about converting the 1897 book into a 2006 movie. But it got delayed until 2019, and then they started filming it. They filmed it from July to September of 2019. So Johnny Depp no longer in it. And I, why would you even be in it if you're an invisible man? Like, I guess maybe the character has a voice. Not too sure. Now I'm curious what this is. Now it makes me want to read H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, 1897. I love how um, forward-thinking a lot of these old, you know, 19th century authors were with their invisible man-ness. It's not an invisible man. It's an invisible person. H.G. Wells was a misogynist. He was part of the patriarchy. Um... Invisible Man is a science fiction novel by H.G. Wells, originally serialized in Pearson's Weekly. I'm guessing that was a popular publication back in the day. Probably the uh, 1897 version of TMZ, perhaps. It was published as a novel the same year. The Invisible Man to whom the title refers is Griffin, a scientist who has devoted himself to research into optics. Okay. And who invents a way to change... Oh, I actually kind of like this. Who invents a way to change a body's refractive index to that of air so that it neither absorbs nor reflects light. See, that's kind of cool. Um, the science fiction aspect of it um, is kind of cool. It's not some Marvel thing where, you know, some distant world bestows uh, marvelous powers on people. Um, it's kind of the Iron Man of the superhero realm, the, the scientist who uses technology. I kind of like that. In fact, I've heard, and I might have shared this on an episode a couple years ago, that I think that's one of the reasons that Star Trek is so popular among nerds is because it's rooted in science. <laughs> so if that's true, excuse me, if, that, if that's true, if Star Trek is rooted in science, it means that cancel culture is coming for it um, because cancel culture cannot permit science to uh, just be science. It has to has to do other things and, and not be science. So there is that. Anyway, yeah, so this movie looks... Um, I'm going to have to read the book and watch the film. That could be that could be a fun endeavor. And why is this thing? So if you have a Mac book, they have this little thing where you can have you can set up like multiple desktops. And during the work week, it's invaluable because I have a desktop for uh, th three of my main work focuses. So when I I just swipe double finger, you use two fingers on your little mouse, and which reminds me, I probably need to charge this bad boy. I haven't charged my wireless mouse in a week um i probably need to charge it it's gonna go dead right in the middle of the podcast and i'm gonna not have a way to end the recording and it will end up breaking the guinness book of world records for longest podcast ever <laughs> you might hear the the heater fan on in the background i forgot to turn 
uh, the heat down while I was recording this, so you might get a little bit of uh, furnace blowing. It is 26 degrees outside here in in North Georgia, um, which is quite frigid after living in Florida for 12 and a half years. Um, I'm slowly, slowly adjusting. Um, but anyway, uh, so this, the, the MacBook has these desktop features and you can just uh, use two fingers on the, on the mouse pad or the wireless mouse to swipe left and right and it'll like change your entire uh, setup. So it's almost like you have three different computers or I guess you could have as many desktops as you want. I don't think there's any limit to how many I can add. If I go up here, I scroll to the right. Yep, add new, add new. Oh, this is, oh wow, this is like refreshing. Or, or as my kids say, it's satisfying. 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, I think this is infinite. Holy smokes, who needs 15 desktops? Wow, now I'm gonna have to go through and individually, oh shoot, individually deleting all of these is gonna be a, Hold on, they better, oh nice, they've got a little X up at the top. How, how nice of you, Apple. Nice user interface makes it so easy to create and then destroy. <laughs> oh man, so, so why was there no podcast last week? Well, um, it's because I took my wife out of town for a nice little five-day birthday weekend. It was her birthday, um, which so happens to coincide with a Valentine's Day. Um, so we went away um, for uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty much five days. I mean, you know, day on the day, day kind of driving on the front end, and then three days at the place, and then a day driving back. So it's kind of like a three-day vacation with sort of a half day. So half half. One half plus one half is one plus three is four. So sort of a four day vacation out of grand total of five days. And you say, well, where did you go? Um, and my answer would be, well, check out my Instagram where I broadcast every last private detail of my life to the world to see. Um, no, of course, I'm kidding. Um, if you follow me on the Instagrizzle, um, you can't say Instagrizzle, that's so cheesy. Dad joke alert, dad joke alert. I need to come up with some sort of like bell or alarm or audio, audible audio notification for when there's a dad joke coming on this thing. Anyway, I did post a, a single picture um, from, from uh, Driftwood Beach, which you could have deduced from that where we were. Um, but we went to a cool place in South Georgia. I think it's about an hour north of the Florida line, north of Jacksonville on the Atlantic, and it's called Jekyll Island. And if you are an economics honk like I am, you would know that Jekyll Island is where the Federal Reserve was created by a bunch of stuffy, snobby elitists back in the early 1900s. Um, and there's actually a book written by it about it called The Creature from Jekyll Isle. Um, so if you're into economic history and monetary poly policy history, as I am, uh, you would probably enjoy reading The Creature from Jekyll Isle. Uh, if you're not a homeschool nerd, you would probably find it uh, intolerable. So uh, depending on where you fall on the homeschool nerd scale, uh, you can do with that book what you deem best. Um, so yeah, so we stayed 
And it, so if you're into economics and you're into free market economics, you know that the Federal Reserve is like the bane of of free market economic uh like people who believe in free market economics hate the Federal Reserve. They hate the central bank um, because it just because it controls the most important price in the world, and that's the interest rate. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, you know, so we talk about command and control economies. Um, oh man, I'm turning this off now. This is this is this is getting boring in economics. Feel free, click the off button. Go ahead. I dare you. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Click the stop button. It's the little circle um, with the square in the middle. Um, anyway, so command and control economies like Russia, for instance, um, communist Russia before they collapsed in the early 1990s, they had a central pricing committee. And I've shared this before on previous episodes. Um, or at least in conversations, uh, all these things blur together in my head. I can't, I, I can't, I'm, I can't distinguish when I'm actually talking to other humans and when I'm just talking to myself in front of the podcasting microphone. <laughs> but they've got these central, they had these central command and control pricing committees, and you had a group of a couple dozen people in charge of setting prices on 27 million different products in Russia give or take a few. Um, but the Central Pricing Committee in Russia had to set prices. They were responsible for setting prices on 27 million products in Russia. The problem is that there's only 32 and a half, 33, I think, is it 32 and a half or 33 and a half? We'll just say, we'll split the difference and say 33 million. There's roughly 33 million seconds in a year. So you can see the logistical problems and impossibilities of setting prices on 27 million items when there's only 33, uh, roughly 33 million seconds in an entire year. So what happens in a command and control economy is things grind to a halt because the signal which price sends to individual consumers is really muted. It's a really bad signal. Um, because you're likely dealing with a signal that is at least a year old, probably even longer. Um, so you say, well, America is a free market economy. We don't centrally set prices. And while that is you know, true on local gas stations setting, you know, hey, if you go to a rural part of the country, um, gas might be cheaper than if you know you're trying to get gas you know in Miami or next to the airport in New York or something or Disney World holy smokes talk about inflated gas prices you can get it for two bucks a gallon you know 30 miles away from Disney World but you get to Disney World and it's like it's double um, I saw that many a time when we were down in in Florida so on on the one hand we do have a lot of freedom on pricing you know, because the, the the gas station down the street can, you know, buy a case of, of Coke bottles at Sam's Club for 10 bucks and turn around and sell them for $1.79 each. Um, but the, the reason that free market economists hate the central bank, hate the Federal Reserve, is because they control the most important price in the market, which is the interest rate, which is essentially the price of money. So if you control the price of money, you then control 
by and large where people are placing their money. So if you set the interest rate artificially low, and I mean, just think about it in terms of savings, like probably the highest percentage rate that you can get in a savings account is maybe a percent, maybe a percent and a quarter, if you're lucky. So if you have $10,000 or a thousand bucks or a hundred thousand dollars, and you go, oh, it would be smart for me to save it. Well, at a percent, 1% a year, you're gonna go, oof, I mean, that's not that great of a return when inflation is, you know, two and a half percent or three percent or two point three percent or whatever the however they manipulate the inflation rate. Um, so it's by controlling the price of money, it actually sends wrong signals to individual consumers and individual investors. So then they do things with their money that maybe the market is not uh, would not be telling them to do. Um, so anyway, that's a much larger, that's a small sliver of a much larger discussion. Um, so with all of that said, I find it, it was kind of funny to stay on the island where the Federal Reserve was created because the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, from a free market economic standpoint, is quite uh, misleading. It is, it is, it convolutes the price of money, which in turn creates something called malinvestment, um, misplaced dollars, dollars that are placed based on bad intel. Um, so that's a very interesting discussion. And 99.99999% of the population doesn't care. Um, and at the end of the day, does it really, you know, do we feel the effects of that? I'm sure we do. Um, but I don't think about that. And like I go through my week and I don't sit there and wring my hands over malinvestment. You just try to play the cards that the elitist snobs deal you. <laughs> so um, it's a cool island. Driftwood Beach was really, really cool. Um, apparently there's a bunch of oak trees that have, I guess, I guess the beach has eroded. That would make sense. It's global warming. The sea levels are rising. No, I think the beach has just eroded to the point where what used to be, um, you know, inland the is now the beach. And so the salt water has attacked um, the more inland area in this particular section of the beach. And the salt water has in turn killed the oak trees. And so there's just all of these huge massive old oak trees that are just dead as doornails and they're falling over and they're you know getting splashed with waves it's a really cool site if you have a chance to go check it out in person it's pretty impressive and we found out while we were staying there that uh, some episodes of the upcoming fear of the walking dead uh, were filmed there and i've never watched the fear of the walking dead um so i couldn't really speak to that, but we did have uh, TV on uh, this last week and they ran a promo for the upcoming season of The Fear of the Walking Dead. And we were like instantly like, oh, hey, we got to see. And sure enough, in the promo, you could see there was some zombie scene um, with on Driftwood Beach. So pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. Um, we stayed at Well, they have, they've got a, a a handful of historic buildings that you can stay in, like the actual buildings where all of the snobby, you know, international financiers came to create a paper money system to destroy the value of everybody else's wealth. <laughs> um, but we chose not to stay in those creepy 
uh, creaky, haunted, old uh, buildings, we chose to stay in the brand new, um, one of the brand new hotels on the island, which overlooked the, the, the shoreline. It was beautiful. A lot of fun, very relaxing. The only downside to the weekend was that the weather was quite miserable. It was rainy and cold and windy the whole weekend. So there was a couple times, twice, where we could get out when it wasn't raining. Um, and the one time we went to Driftwood Beach and the other time we just went outside and actually actually uh, braved the hot tub. You could tell everyone was looking at us like, you guys are crazy. Um, but the hot tub was, was warm. It wasn't hot. It could have been a lot hotter. Um, but we'd like to go back when the weather's better because there's several miles of biking trails and hiking trails. And um, there's there, for as small as the island is, there's three golf courses on it plus a nine-hole course. So you've got whatever, three times 18, 54 holes plus a nine-holer. So you've got 63 holes worth of golf on a relatively small island. Um, so I think going back when the weather's better and biking, renting bikes and biking the island and maybe playing around to golf would be quite fun. Oh, what a fancy vacation, Mr. Golf Man. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And a lot of uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, stayed at the Elitist Snob Lodge. That's a, that's a good name, the, the Elitist Snob Lodge. Snob Lodge. That, that's actually a nice word. I'm going to write that down. I don't know what it's going to be for. Snob Lodge. Um, that's going to become new lingo. New lingo. I'm going to, I'm going to make Snob Lodge be a new word. Just like I made uh, Caps Lock. <laughs> so if you're familiar with TikTok generation lingo, cap means that you're lying. Um, so we were doing something and I asked, I asked one of my kids a question and he gave me an answer which seemed a little fishy and I just said caps lock. And him and his siblings started laughing their heads off. So I told him, I told my kids that I'm going to turn caps lock into the new TikTok generation lingo. So anytime I suspect my kids are lying, I just say caps lock. It's kind of, it's kind of ran its course after about three days. They're kind of like, dad, you're dumb. Dad joke alert, dad joke alert. Rear, rear, rear. All right. So that's why there was no Saturday mornings with Muthi last week. Um, because let's be honest, would I rather be at some elitist snob island enjoying a birthday weekend with my lovely bride or would I be, rather be podcasting? The, the answer is quite, quite obvious. Stock market's going crazy. Um, I'm sure that you've probably heard through the grapevine uh, the GameStop nonsense, and apparently there was some congressional hearings, which I cannot stomach. Anytime I hear the word congressional hearing, I know that it's just going to be a bunch of entrenched bureaucrats bloviating endlessly about how important they are. Um, but I have been, as most uh, new entrants to the stock market um, since last March when the thing fell through the floor and people were sitting around with nothing better to do than to download apps and start trading. Holy smokes. So anyway, um, I've been, I've been trading uh, stocks for almost a year and having a blast learning how to do it. But a lot of uh, experienced traders that I've have been reading and following they say that you have to have a strategy for when the market goes down. Now, 
given the actions of the Fed since 2009, um, it appears that they're committed to a printing money until the entire system breaks strategy. So if that holds, you know, as much as the market would want to go down if it's overinflated, uh, it, it appears that the quantitative easing, I don't know what you're talking about. Quantitative easing is basically just the Fed printing money out of thin air. And it used to be that they actually ran the printing presses and created paper currency to flood the system with, and now it's all just done with dig digital. It's just pixels on a screen. They hit a button, print more, and the decimal place slides to the right, and voila, there's more money in the system. Um, so as long as the Fed is committed to printing um, its way into economic euphoria, it's hard to fathom how the market would go down. Um, but at some point it has to break. Like there's no way that, it, that you can, maintaining 25 plus trillion dollars in debt uh, with hyperinflated assets, at some point it has to break, it has to reset. Um, and, and the feds, there's actually a funny uh, meme going around in economic nerd circles, the the uh, printing press go burr, and it's it's got like, you know, the Fed just cranking out the money and money flying off of the, the printing press. Um, so yeah, it's, it's they're either gonna print us into higher economic euphoria. Um, I, I don't think it's either. I think they're gonna print us into economic euphoria until the entire thing just collapses, is my opinion. So, with that said, experienced traders are saying that you have to learn a strategy for how to profit um, when the market is going the opposite direction. So when it does correct, when it go, does go down, when we do enter a bear market. Um, so I remember from some of my finance classes back in college, uh, way yonder, um, 20 years ago, that I remember a whole class I took on options trading. And that was sort of the whole thing with options is that if you thought it, if you thought a stock price would go up, you'd buy a call option. If you thought a stock price would go down, you'd buy a put option. So I was like, sweet, um, I need to figure out how to trade some options. So I've also read that trading options is the fastest way to lose 90% of your cash. So being the astute investor that I am, um, I am using the paper trading account um, with the Ameritrade app. So if you get the Thinkorswim app through Ameritrade, you can paper trade, meaning it's just play money. So um, so I logged into my paper trading account this last week thinking, ah, I'm gonna be an astute investor and, <laughs> and buy some put options. Because if you think a stock's gonna go down, you buy put options. So also being the high riverboat, high risk riverboat gambler that I am, I decided to buy the most outlying, uh, improbable, highest payoff option on the GameStop stock. And uh, so it cost me like 1200 bucks um, to buy, and I, I don't even know exactly what I bought other than that it was, it was the most aggressive, like GameStop's gonna go in the toilet over the next 30 days option. So it was the cheapest because it's the most improbable to happen. It's kind of like buying, you know, it's like putting money, you go to the Kentucky Derby and they've got the favorite 
you know, they've got the two to one favorite, the three to two, the five to two, the 10 to one, whatever. Well, I basically picked like the, the horse that's like on the, the entry ramp to the glue factory. Okay. <laughs> so if it pays off, if it hits, if in the one in a million chance that it hits, you make a gazillion dollars, but most likely it's going to end up in the glue factory. So I, I essentially bought the put the glue option equivalent of a GameStop option just to see how this whole game worked. And I put $1,200 in um, to secure 10 options. And I still don't even know the lingo. I don't know what the strike price was. I'm just trying to learn. And that's why it's in my paper account. Um, and I, I just logged in this morning two days later and I am down 1830 bucks. Percentage-wise, um, yeah, so I'm getting clobbered. I'm getting clobbered, which I, I don't understand because when you buy an option, your max loss is the cost of the option of the option contract. So max loss, I could only lose 1200 bucks. So I don't know why it's showing me that I'm down $1,830. Um, wow. Yeah, I have no idea. I need to figure out how these... Um... Oh, no, 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 no. I get it. I get it. That's showing me... GameStop itself, I guess if I converted the option. So if I converted the option on GameStop as of yesterday, market close, I would be down $1,830 on game on, on GameStop, GameStop stock. And if I closed out the option itself, I'd be down 505 bucks. So basically I've lost 40% in three days. Um, trading a, a glue factory GameStop put option. So apparently I've got a I've got a lot to learn. <laughs> but considering considering the Fed just prints money into oblivion to bail out its friends, maybe the moral of the story is that I need to get like a billion dollars together and buy the exact same glue factory put option and then go crawling to my friends at Wall Street and the Fed and Congress and they'll just cut me a check to bail out my losses. And I could probably even talk them into giving me, I don't know, 50% of my money. So hey, I, I risked a billion, so give me a billion and a half back and we'll call it even because I'm too big to fail. Um, I would never do that because it's corrupt and I would end up burning in a hotter place uh, likely for that um but yeah so needless to say i'm glad i'm doing this in my paper account because i have no clue what i'm doing um the the the, the extent of my knowledge on options is limited to if you think it's going to go up you buy a call if you think it's going down you buy a put and that there's a strike price and an expiration date that's all i know that's all I know, and apparently I've got to monkey around with a couple of those variables because uh, losing 40% in three days. Um, oh, wow, the paper, that's odd, that's hilarious. Maybe the paper trading account is just mirroring the Federal Reserve because it tallies up everything underneath um, and it shows you your profit loss on the day, your profit loss since opening the positions um, your net liquidity available, and then your available cash. And when it gets to my available cash line, it says minus infinity. <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. So I think buying a put option is essentially equivalent to shorting it um, with a cap on your loss. 
cap caps lock um, because when you short something there's theoretically no limit to your loss but when you buy a put option so you're, you're still banking on the price going down it's just that a put option caps your loss at whatever the total all the total dollar amount that it cost you to buy the options contract was so if you're going to be a bear if you want to try to profit on other people's failings um disable help maybe i should turn on help maybe what if i say no, i don't want i don't want to disable help can i put in um how to trade options for dummies maybe that would help me you know what that gives me an idea another book beat beverage trading whoops it would help if i actually was in the browser trading options Oh, for beginners, I don't need beginners, I need dummies. Trading options for dummies, please exist. Swing trading for dummies. Oh, nice, they do have trading options for dummies. Dude, whoever started that dummies franchise is a legend. They have it for everything. They have it for everything. Trading options for dummies. Now the only question is, don't click the Amazon link. So now I need to, let's go here. We're gonna copy trading options for dummies. Dude, I love this dummies guy. Although the couple that I've read have been pretty bad. Yeah, they haven't been all that insightful, but you know, hey, I guess it's for dummies. So um, we're gonna go to thrift books, the anti-Amazon, allegedly, uh, place to buy books. Search 13 million titles by title, author, or ISBN. Trading options for dummies, yes! It's in their search results. Sweet. Trading options for dummies by Joe Durate. I love it. Wow, they've got futures and options for dummies, high-powered investing for dummies, market timing for dummies. Okay, so I mean, really? Okay. All right. Successful biotech investing. <laughs> Step one, pick a biotech startup that will get FDA approval. Um, yeah, how do you figure that? Although when they do get FDA approval, holy moly, they run like crazy animals. Um, there was one that was trading in like the 30 to 40 cent range uh, six weeks ago, and they got FDA approval for their prostate cancer treatment and it went to two dollars and eighty cents um which return wise is silly bazilli um it's like 900 percent um <clears throat> so being the astute investor i am i took out a second mortgage and chased that thing through the roof no i'm kidding i waited for um it to retrace from its highs using a, a handful of calculative calculative um using a handful of uh stock calculation methods that exist in certain uh, stock apps and then bought some um, when it retraced the level that i felt comfortable with and it's in the i have a lockbox, so I, I most of the stuff i do is short term not day trading like you know buy and sell five minutes later although i have done that a couple times um but it's short term most of the positions i hold are for you know anywhere from five to maybe 14 days um, but i do have a lockbox list and when they go into the lockbox, i just don't look at them uh, 
So um, I bought that one and put it in the lockbox list because um, a an effective prostate cancer treatment sounds like it uh, has promise. That should be free for the masses. Uh, okay, we're not going to get into discussions of whether or not medical breakthroughs should be free or not. Um, ooh, I'm, I'm feeling conflicted even saying that. I sort of think they should be, but I also recognize the cost that goes into to finding the medical breakthroughs. I have no idea. I'm conflicted. I'm shorting out. Um, when your free market economics runs headfirst into uh, ethical morality issues, you, you kind of have some sh short outs every now and then. Um, so yeah, options trading for dummies. I need to buy that sucker because I'm getting clobbered in my GameStop position. Um, I do find it offensive, and this is this is probably just a this this would capture my feelings towards most elites. Um, the the tyranny of the moral busybody drives me crazy. And it was either C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton, or maybe some other guy <laughs> who talked about the tyranny of the moral busybody. Yay, Google tyranny or not Google duck? I, oh, what was I saying? I'm goosing it. I'm duck duck going it. I'm goosing it. Tyranny of moral. Ooh, busy. Hmm. Interesting. The duck duck go does not autofill that. Um, tyranny of the omnipotent moral busybody. Oh yeah. Okay. Here we go. It was C.S. Lewis. Look at that. Way to go, muth memory. C.S. Lewis, of all tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience, Mic drop, kaboom, C.S. Lewis basically telling global elitists to go pound sand. Um, so yeah, that, that quote captures my uh, view and my, my feelings towards the omnipotent moral busybodies of the world. And that, in my mind, that's what I found so offensive with Robin Hood halting the trading on GameStop. Oh, we have to do it to protect our investors. To, to protect our customers. Get out of their way. Get out of their way. If some moron wants to buy GameStop at 350 bucks a share or $510 a share, which is what I think it capped out at, let them do it. And if you let them do it, they're gonna chase the price up to 750 and the guy that bought at 510 is gonna sell the due to 750. The guy at 510 is living large. The guy at 750 learns a lesson. Learns a lesson. Rule number one, don't chase stocks. Rule number two, probably rule number one, don't be greedy. Um, and, and just as with anything else in life, the only way you learn is through failure. We don't, we don't learn to walk by never falling down. If you have kids and you've watched them learn how to walk, they face plant constantly. And they might crack their chin off the edge of the coffee table once or twice, 
But pretty soon they learn, hey, I when I start falling, I should just bend my knees and collapse to the floor on my knees so that I'm not falling over like a 60 foot tall pine tree in the forest and ricocheting off of hard objects. That's how you learn. So the guy that bought, if you let it run and the guy that buys GameStop at 750 loses money, hey, he learned a valuable lesson. But no, um, Vlad, the CEO of, of Robinhood, has to say, oh, we have to protect people. And really, if you understand shorting, it's probably a unholy mixture between one, Robinhood not having the cash on hand to pay out the people who are selling to the shorts for profit. Um, and it's also an unholy mixture of the hedge funds who shorted the stock at five bucks a share running out not not needing to not go bankrupt so um robin hood likely didn't have the cash on hand which is a direct function or, or it's 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 more than indirectly correlated to the hedge funds who shorted the stock running out of liquidity themselves um, but in good insider elitist federal reserve uh, backroom deal um, gone mad. They're too big to fail. Hey, we took a, a, a ridiculous bet. We shorted up 129%. At one point I read it was 129% of the available shares were shorted. Um, we placed a ridiculous bet. And instead of us losing our shirt, as we should have, um, we just changed the rules midstream. Um, to save ourselves and screw the little guy. So uh, I find the entire thing to be offensive and it's moral busybodies. It's actually just greedy people who made bets that they were losing big time on, um, putting on the disguise of being morally concerned about protecting the little guy. That's all it was. So shame on you, Robin Hood. Shame on you. Uh, anybody involved in preventing people, quote unquote, from hurting themselves. You only learn when you lose. That's one thing that tennis taught me. <laughs> you only learn when you lose. So get busy losing. What's that quote? Get, bu get busy living or get busy dying or I don't know. Um, my the muth mantra is get busy losing because that's when you learn and once you've lost once you've lost enough um then maybe you can start winning i was given a tennis lesson to this guy um, who wants to become a better player and he's probably a he's probably just entering into like the 4.0 level um he could probably get away with four or five maybe in some dubs um some doubles but singles probably around just cracking into that 4-0 level. And so when I when I give him lessons, I, I teach him, you know, I he's like, hey, don't take it easy on me. So I don't take it easy on him. And, you know, hey, don't take it easy on me. And so I, you know, roll him and roll him and just, you know. So finally he, I said, hey, do you want some advice? And he goes, yeah. And I said, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but you need to learn to lose without making so many mistakes. <laughs> You need, you need to learn how to let me kick your butt without you making the mistakes because that's how you get better. 
you have to learn how to lose better before you can actually start learning how to win. And I actually think they're one and the same, to be honest. If you learn to lose better, um, you're actually learning how to win. Man, I should write a tennis psychology book. It would probably appeal to uh, people with multiple personalities and schizophrenia. Um, so what's on the docket for this week? Um, I got to tighten up my, I'm going to order trading options for dummies. I've got to tighten up my options trading because if I'm going to profit from buying put options, apparently I have no clue what I'm doing. Unless I need, yeah. I mean, if the market's going up, a put option's going to lose regardless. Oh, stinking options. Um, I think the people that I have read who say that it's the fastest way to lose 90% of your money are spot on. But I do remember, there's a couple things, only a few things I remember um, in my life. Um, but one of my good friends back when I was 18, 19 years old, his dad, um, he, he made me swear to him at dinner one night. He's like, Brandon, I don't care what you do with your life, but you have to swear to me right now that you will never short trade. You'll never become a short trader. And I was like, okay, okay, I do, Mr. So-and-so. I promise to never short trade. Um, and he said good because he saw friends uh, lose everything, including their lives, um, from short contracts going the wrong direction. And you kind of saw that with the GameStop stuff. Uh, because as I said earlier, when you short, your losses are theoretically limitless. Um, it was actually kind of a fun exercise. We calculated out, you know, if you put 10 grand on GameStop at five bucks and it went to zero, you'd be out 10 grand. But if you put 10 grand on shorting it at five bucks and it hit 510, um, I think you had to come out of pocket like $980,000 or something. So instead of losing 10 grand, you would have to come up with an additional $970,000 just to get out of your short position. <laughs> so, oh man, no wonder there was just mass mob mentality buying of that particular security. And the fact that it got shut down is kind of, um, I actually think it would have been kind of cool if it would have broke the entire stock market. Like you would have had to liquidate every other stock just to cover the infinite short position. Would have been an interesting scenario. And that could be, that's probably a, a long shot reason why they shut it down. Um, but theoretically, if losses are limitless, if losses can go to infinity, the only way to continue to cover those short positions would be to liquidate other security holdings in order to raise cash in order to cover the short position. So, you know, Apple, Tesla could have gone from 850 bucks a share down to a penny um, as people were liquidating to get cash to cover the shorts, theoretically speaking. Um, so yeah, there we go. We're back to Saturday mornings with Muthi. We're gonna get to two questions came in since the last podcast. Pull these up. Dear Brandon, enjoying the podcast. It sounds like you're a big tennis fan. I'm a huge tennis fan from the 1980s. I wanted to see who some of your favorite players from the 1980s were. And to test your knowledge, are you familiar with a guy named Elliot Telcher? Of course I am. Don't throw that weak sauce at me. Elliot Telcher, the man perm. The man perm, tall, lanky. I'm gonna say Elliot Telcher was what, 6'3"? Elliot Tell. Oh, there he is. Wow, way to go, Goose Goose Go. Um, Goose Goose Go would be so much better than Duck Duck Go. 
Their branding needs to get it together. I like Goose Goose Go. Elliot Telcher images. Oh, man perm, dude. Yeah, that guy. He was he was tall and lanky, and he wore that 80s man perm like a beast. Um, of course I'm familiar with Elliot Telcher. Some of my other favorite players from the 80s. Um, I wasn't a huge Pat Cash fan. I remember watching the 87 Wimbledon when he took out Lendl. And I was actually kind of pulling for Lendl because he'd never won Wimbledon. And he'd lost in the previous two finals. I believe he lost... Um, no, 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 no. That was 87. He lost the 86 final to Becker, but Becker beat Kevin Curran in the 85 final. So Lendl must have lost in the semis in the 85 Wimbledon. Um, yeah, so it was back-to-back -back finals for Lendl in 87. He lost to Becker in 86 and then lost to... Uh, Lost to Cash in 87. Wasn't a huge Cash fan. Um, I did like Edberg back in the day. Um, I remember watching Boris Becker win the 85 US Open when he was, or Wimbledon when he was uh, 17. And I was seven at the time. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to win Wimbledon when I'm seven. It's only 10 years away. And I stepped out of our camper and uh, practiced my my strokes with my racket in the in the campground RV park that we were living in. Um, just air serving and air volleying and air backhanding and forehanding. And I was truly convinced in my mind that I was going to win Wimbledon at 17. Um, I do remember him. Who are some other guys? Andres Yared. I remember Andres Yared. He was a cool, cool Swede. Um, Vlander was fun to watch. Yannick Noah was exciting, but he was kind of on the downtrend. Um, like, I don't remember much of Yannick Noah. He he was more like, I think he was in his prime, maybe like 83, 84, maybe some into 85. Um, I don't really remember him a whole lot other than a couple highlight reel shots. He, did, he, he was the first guy really, I think, to really pull off the tweener. Although I've seen some old video of Borg hitting some tweeners in the, in the 70s on clay. Um, but yeah, Yannick Noah was like the, I think the first guy to really be known for the flair. He was the 80s equivalent of like a Monfils. Um, just total showman, incredibly athletic, wildly talented. Um, Guy Forget, he was interesting. He, he was like going bald when he was 20. Um, Henri Leconte, he was fun. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, Elliot Telcher. Elliot Telcher, I don't even think he did very well um, as far as like Grand Slam results. Um, he was as high as six in the world. Um, he oh he won the '83 French Open mix. Let's see his let's see his results. Yeah, he was he was he was kind of decent. I mean, six in the world, not bad, dude. Six in the world, and he made a whopping one point six million dollars. You could be like a hundredth in the world right now and make a million bucks a year. That's insane. The Federal Reserve is inflating things. Exhibit A. Probably more like Exhibit um, 12,079-42A. Um, turned pro in 77, retired in 88. Made the quarterfinals of the Aussie. Fourth round of the French three times. Third round of Wimbledon once and quarterfinals of the US Open three times. Interesting. Oh, he won 10 times. Won 10 times, and he won He won the men's doubles at the French in 81, and the mixed doubles in 83. Yeah, I remember that guy. 
He's coached a lot of people since then. Interesting. He coached Sampras for a year in 92. Huh. Interesting. That must have been before Sampras got the Golikson on his side. The Golikson. Okay. Oh, interesting. He made it to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open in 80 and 81 and 83, where each time... Oh, where each time he was defeated by Connors. Okay. I was going to say if he beat Connors three times at the U.S. Open, that's that's some ballsy tennis right there. So he was on the Davis Cup team. Yeah. So Elliot Telcher, if you want to Google him and see his the man bun or the man perm and all its glory, E L I O T T L T S H E R. Have fun. What's that? Get okay. It's just Tobias. Be safe. No, his finger hurt too bad. Um. So on our vacation weekend, uh, my father-in-law came up and watched the kids so that we could have a romantic getaway. Uh, and he took him to one of those trampoline jump places and our youngest son, like, he jacked his finger pretty bad. Like, um, he can still kind of move it, but it is shades of blue and black and purple, which I have not seen. And so he went to, he missed rowing twice this week because he was like, how am I supposed to pull an oar with a purple and black and blue finger? And I was like, just, Hold your pinky up in the air. Just pretend you're a snob and you're sipping tea with your pinky up in the air. So he did not go two days. And then yesterday I was like, dude, you just got to man up. Like just man up. Freaking read some read some manly stories and just go man up and pull the oar. So he went and uh, apparently his finger was hurting pretty bad this morning. So he pleaded, please don't make me go this morning, you evil taskmaster. <laughs> So I uh, I said, yeah, it's fine. Your finger looks pretty stanky. You can you can rest that thing. Um, but apparently he, he heard it uh, playing dodgeball at the trampoline place. Like some kid rifled a ball in at him and his finger was out and it hit on the end and just bent it pretty funny, um, which I've, I've had a broken finger before. I'll have to I'll have to recount that story when I when I actually rebroke my finger in order to win a tennis match. Um, which paid dividends. I squeaked out the first set 7-6. Um, I was actually down 5-4. And I was like, I'm not losing to this chump um, who ended up going on. And I think he played it. I want to say he played at Brown, Harvard. He played at some top 10 school and was an All-American. Um, but I was down 5-4. And I was like, I'm not losing this kid. He's a bum. And I had broken my finger. Uh, the previous, about, I think it was two weeks prior, playing basketball, pickup game of basketball, which my coach and dad got really upset at because tennis was my only focus in life. And so I went and they put a little splint on it, like the bendy metal thing with the foam, and they tape it on. And it was like, don't use it, you know, just let it rest. So I was trying to play this match against this kid. And I have a two and a backhand, but I was just slicing everything. And he was picking on my slice because it's more of a defensive kind of stay in the point shot. Um, so I was down 5-4 and I was like, I'm not losing this kid. So on the changeover, I, I took the tape off and took the, took the splint off my finger and I set it. I remember setting the racket across my lap with the handle sticking out to my left. And I set my finger, um, on the racket handle. Um, 
and I took my right hand and I just crunched my finger over the handle to get it into the backhand grip and it hurt like the dickens um but I was like dude I'm not losing this guy so anyway got that finger back on there and uh just started grinding through hitting backhands with it two-handed backhands I ended up winning the first set seven six and then bageled him in the second six oh if you're listening to this Mr. So-and-so you know who you are um I ground through a broken finger to not lose to you because I thought you were a bum which I still think you are and were uh so there we go Elliot Telcher Elliot Elliot Telcher um second question Hey, Brandon, thanks for doing the podcast. I enjoy listening to it while I mow while I mow the grass. Where are you living where you're mowing grass in freaking January, homie? I'm guessing I'm guessing where would that got to be like South Florida or maybe like SoCal. Those are the only two places I can think. Where you, unless he's like an are you an international listener? Do I have a guy in like Australia right now mowing grass listening to the Muthanomics podcast? That would be exciting. Uh, throw another shrimp on the bobby. Um, that was not an Australian accent. Uh, what are some other stereotypical Australian things I can say? That's not a knife. This is a knife. All right. So you enjoy listening to the podcast while you're mowing grass wherever this is. I have no clue. Must be a warmer part of America or south of the hemi- the southern hemisphere because we are currently in the dead of North Georgia, 26 degrees. And I'm dying. I'll trade you spots. Tell me where you are. I'm going to respond to this guy and say, I'm only going to answer your question if you tell me where you are and we can switch roles for a week. I'll go mow your grass. You come do the podcast. Deal? Um, enjoy the podcast while I'm mowing grass. Any additional Economics books you would recommend. Enjoy Thomas Sowell. Okay. Yeah. Um, so apparently he's heard me talk about some economics and mentioning Thomas Sowell. Um, and wants to know other books to recommend. Some of the ones you recommended are a little too long, a little too in-depth. Where's a good starting point? Um, yeah, you're right. The... Um, the theory of money and credit's probably a little too uh, clunky to start with. I, I I would really recommend Human Action. I would recommend Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. It's long, but it's so fundamental to understanding. Um, I think the forces in play in a free market framework. I would recommend that. Um, anything really by Thomas Sowell, uh, but a couple right off the top of my head that I would recommend. Basic economics is a good starting point. And then after you read basic economics, I would go to economic facts and fallacies. And he does a really good job. Once you get the foundation of the basic economics, the economic facts and fallacies kind of puts it into practice in the real world to get you to identify, hey, you know, these are these are real economic facts and these are um, economic fallacies hence the name of the book um i've mentioned probably before an empire of wealth is a is a fun one it's just a broad bird's eye overview of the history of the american economic engine Um, that one can be a fun read um yeah and then from there i mean 
if you if you find yourself enjoying those three or four books, basic economics, economics, facts, and fallacies, um, then there's just a bazillion that you can go from there. And likely, whichever site you buy from, like I'm assuming you're gonna probably buy this from Amazon. So once you buy those, you know, it's gonna say, hey, customers also liked this one. Um, and then you can get into more, maybe some more of the more in-depth reads. Um, but anything by anything by Mises is good. Um, and I call him Mises, I think it's actually Mises, but I like saying Mises for some reason. I'm a contrarian, if you haven't noticed. But now that I answered that question, you need to let me, um, we need to trade roles so I can mow some grass in a warm climate and you can come freeze your gonads off up here in North Georgia. Um, last thing I'll say is I did hurt my back, got back from a vacation and jumped right back into my crazy workouts and I was doing burpee tuck jumps and about two and a half minutes before the infamous injury, my brain said, oh, dude, you're dragging today. You're starting to get tired. Um, you should probably take it easy, old man. And my ego responded, shut up, you weakling. Um, just you got five minutes left on this workout. Just power through it. So around minute 53 out of 60, uh, my brain gave me a warning. And at minute 55, uh, my body flipped me the bird and said, ha ha, screw you, old man. <laughs> you, you did not listen, so we are going to punish you. So I came out of a burpee and went into my tuck jump. And when I landed, my left foot hit a little moist uh, spot on the floor and it slipped forward and my whole back kind of arched backwards and instantly, and it made some sounds and I doubled over on the floor and it's been ugly ever since. So I was walking around sort of like the, the shape of a boomerang. Um, like I couldn't straighten my torso up. Like it was just leaning to the right. Um, and my kids and my wife were like, oh, geez, you look deformed. What happened? And I said, well, I recounted the story of fighting through a workout, even though I knew I should probably stop and paid the price. And so then I tried some stretching, I tried some foam rolling, I tried a regimen of ibuprofen, um, I tried the Theragun, and just kept getting worse and worse. So it was to the point where not only was I leaning to the side, but I was also starting to lean forward, and I was literally walking like I was 98 years old. Um, and I was like, okay, this is bad. So I called around yesterday to try to find a sports chiropractor. Um, but they're all out of network. If you have insurance and you find out of network people, it's like, why even have insurance? Um, and then the ones that I found that were in network, they were booked till next week. And I was like, well, I've got to have a functioning back. So I ended up paying a premium to go to one of the better reviewed sports, uh, sports chiropractor therapists up here in the Atlanta area. And dude spent like two, I was there for like two hours. Um, he stinking worked me 10 ways to Tuesday, um, upper back, middle back, hips. Uh, and then he put me on this TENS bed. I think it was called a TENS bed. It's like an electrical unit bed where you basically lie down and it like shocks you. I think with DC current because AC current, you'd be dead if I understand my electricity correctly, which I don't really. But um, 
it just sits there and it just and it just sends these pulses all over the bed. So like everything from my hamstrings all the way up to my shoulders were like just twitching for 30 minutes. It was quite the experience. Um, and I stood up and I was like, hey, I can actually stand up straight. So thanks to you, chiropractor man. Um, but then this morning I woke up and I was like, oh man, my back hurts. So moral of the story is um, there's a there's a razor thin line between pushing through uh, discomfort and pain and being a moron. And apparently I fell onto the moron side this last week and my lower back is now paying the price. Uh, th thanks for the questions. If you have, if you have questions and you wish to submit them to the podcast, questions or comments, um, anything you want, send it to podcast at muthonomics.com. Pod, actually, hold on, podcast. Maybe it's questions at muthonomics.com. Huh. You can try both. <laughs> podcast at muthonomics.com. Um, or questions at muthonomics.com. Um, enjoy your weekend, and we will be back next Saturday for another episode of Muthonomics. Instead of Saturday morning cartoons, listen to the Muthonomics podcast. Adios. Peace.